Hello and welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. Uh, we're back today in our um, Guernsey Press Politics Podcast coffee house. Uh, realistic sound effects and all. My name is James Feller and with me today I've got Matt Fallais from our reporting team and he'll be in the States this week. And also somebody else will be in the States is Deputy Charles Parkinson, uh, the former Treasury Minister. He'll be sitting through uh, what's likely to be four days of a of a budget debate with a long list of amendments uh, to, to tax, uh, no pun intended, uh, even the sharpest political brains. Um, but we've brought uh, Deputy Parkinson in here today primarily for two reasons. One, to talk about the budget, but also to talk about his motion of no confidence in the Policy and Resources Committee, which we now understand is very likely to be heard later this month. But um, it's still a good opportunity to talk through that as PNR prepared to take the budget to the States this week. So, um, Deputy Parkinson, you've um, you've introduced that uh, the motion of no confidence. I mean, you've been threatening it for a while. Uh, and now, you know, after the uh, failure of the funding investment plan, uh, that's now come to pass. Were you surprised at the level of support that you re- received for your motion? Uh, yeah, I think there is quite widespread support for it. The, the Assembly's, I think, fairly evenly divided. Hopefully, we'll just uh, scrape a majority. But um, there are a lot of people who, for various reasons, are unhappy with the uh, progress of this assembly. Yeah, why do you feel the committee needs to go? Because, I mean, is it is it all their fault or is it the fault of the states itself? Well, uh, they created, in a way, the, the, the divisions within the assembly and I think some of the to- toxic atmosphere in it. Uh, but, uh, but actually, the trigger is, of course, the failure of their funding and investment plan proposals, which were effectively presented to the states for the third time and, and defeated for the second time. And I think any government in any other democracy would would fall at that point because this is their central fiscal policy. If they go, uh, there'll be 18 months left in the life of this assembly. What do you hope that a new uh, policy and resources could or would achieve? Well, I think for a start, it would be nice if they could rebuild consensus government, which has been destroyed, and and to tr- just simply try and get a more positive atmosphere in the assembly. And 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 obviously, a l- not much will be achieved in terms of spades in the ground in eighteen months. But we could at least start to make some progress uh, if if we can heal the divisions and move together. Uh, it's, it's you know uh, wise words, but I'm kind of I struggle with the concept. You know, you're still going to have the same forty people sitting in the state. Uh, Why should a different person or people at the helm, even when the helm is not necessarily respected, uh, be able to to, to make such a change in behaviours, which is kind of what you're talking about? It's a very fair point. And I I have some sympathy with PNR's call for for an early general election, because I think ultimately the public have to sort this out. But um, assuming, and it seems the majority of my colleagues don't want an early general election, um, Assuming we run the full t- course of the the term, do, do we s- spend the next eighteen months sitting on our hands and bickering, or do we actually try and and get something achieved? Charles, I'm interested in whether the the, the motivation is is primarily because if the senior committee loses its flagship tax proposals three times, which it has, then as a point of principle, it should go. You know, it, it can't any longer be said to command any kind of authority over the states. Or because you think for the next 18 months, then there must be a different group of people who are leading the states. Is it in a sense a kind of a punishment for their failure? 
or because you think there can be a genuine turnaround of, of the fortunes of the states with a different committee? Um, I think we have to hope that with a different committee, um, things could improve. Um, you, you know, otherwise, it's just going to be zombie government for 18 months. We're just going to achieve nothing. And, and that won't serve the public at all well. So I'm, I'm not, I say this more in hope than expectation, but I really do hope that with a different leadership team, the states could uh, make some progress in a sensible direction and, and uh, start by restoring consensus government. You're not surprised, are you, that that it's reached this point at the state's term? No, no, it's been toxic from day one. Um, you know, from the elections of the presidents and so on. It's It's been, uh, I, I've never been in a state uh, like it, where, uh, you, you know, in previous assemblies, um, basically, people tried to find everyone a job. And people who are considered more able or more experienced were found more senior jobs, even if they didn't uh, completely agree with the, you know, members, members of the senior committees. But in this state, it started right at the beginning when... Um, the uh, the Furbrush gang, if I can call them that, uh, prevented Gavin St. Pierre, the poll topper at the last election, from even getting a seat on scrutiny committee. And uh, I mean, that was just vicious. Mm. And, wh- and where do you think that has come from? Because, I mean, D- Deputy Furbrush himself has been in previous states. He was in the last states. He was in the two states in the 1990s. So he has experience of working in, in other cultures and environments in the states doesn't so where do you think this if there has been such a sharp change in the way the state operates where do you think that came from why did that happen well it has to come from the top basically um, deputy furbrush is as much to blame as anyone and i think he was immensely frustrated in the last assembly because if you remember he only missed out on the uh, the top job uh, by one vote on something like the third recount or something um so he he spent uh, four years in that assembly sort of seething over the fact that he didn't get the job which he he obviously thought he was entitled to but even then um in the spirit of consensus government he was elected president of the committee for economic development uh, and when he had to resign that because of a conflict of interest he was elected president of the state's trading supervisory board he wasn't excluded from senior office just because he was on the losing side this assembly is quite different and uh, as i say it started off very badly uh, it, it, it was resulted in effect a, a, a sort of alternative policy and resources committee sitting on the back benches twiddling its thumbs and arguably a more capable and experienced team uh, which of course poses dangers for the, the the policy and resources committee and i think we're now seeing the fruits of that Deputy Fairbrush, when, when I discuss with him um, alleged tribalism and toxicity in the States, tends to say there is some, but it's always been like this. And that what has changed is that the people who previously felt they were they more or less were in the majority in the States, and he would include you in this, are now in a minority. And that's why they don't like it. It's not because the culture of the States is different. It's because they find themselves marginalised in the way that some some others who are uh, who are now in more senior positions have been in the past. I mean, how, how do you respond to that? 
Well, I, I just don't think it's true because, uh, as I say, in in the last assembly, uh, Deputy Furbrush lost out on the vote for chief minister by the narrowest of margins, but he wasn't excluded from high office. And um, uh, so, you know, the tradition that the states always found jobs for people to do uh, was respected. And um, and, that, and that trying to bring the, the whole body of uh, politics together, regardless of their political persuasions, was 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 respected in the last assembly in a way that it simply hasn't been in this assembly. And, uh, and uh, so we've ha- had this unofficial political party it's it's undeclared it doesn't have a name but it has a whatsapp group and it has been actually amazingly cohesive i honestly thought it might last two years but here we are more than three years into the assembly and it's only now starting to fall apart um so it, it was quite effective but on the other hand it was very divisive you're describing uh, a group of people around deputy furbrush and around pnr who were previously or still are in the Guernsey party that that's the the kind of the the, the members you're describing yeah. but they would say uh, there's exactly the same on the other side you know most of the people who are not in if you like our group are in their own group uh working just as closely together as we are and that this is just a sort of a, a battle, a slightly destructive battle between two sides. But do, do you see it that way? No, I don't. Um, the Guernsey Party of Independence had whatever it was, 11 or so deputies at the start of term, but it fairly rapidly uh, fell apart and was, was sort of formally wound up. And um, I wasn't a member of that. I stood as a, as a genuine independent and I, I remain sat in the assembly as a genuine independent. But I can tell you that I'm not party to any general WhatsApp group of um, people, or, you know, let's characterise them as broadly of the left. I mean, I mean in, with left and right in Guernsey, very relative terms because our left is probably somewhat to the right of most people's right but anyway um that they are you know we are um i'm not aware even of any other uh grouping if you could like to call it on my side of the house that uh, that for example communicates by whatsapp and decides which way collectively they're going to vote Mm -hmm. The, the thought of Guernsey politics WhatsApp groups makes one think of uh, the UK government and COVID WhatsApp groups. So, uh, yeah, the mind boggles at the uh, the potential in those messages. But, um, Charles, you have um, mentioned that you would be prepared to stand as PNR president. Is that something that is truly motivating you or are you just prepared to I, I, create I, I, a contest? I've always just said I'll, I'll, I would uh, take any position, uh, worthwhile position, that the states wanted to offer me. So, um, yes, if if uh, the Assembly wanted me to be president of PNR, I'd stand for that. But that's not what motivates me. So, but you say if they want you, you'll stand. But are you going to test the water there, or are you going oh, to stand? Yeah, or? no. If 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 enough people say to me, Charles, you should stand, then I'll stand. But I'd stand actually not in great with great hopes of succeeding because there's that old saying that he who wear, you know, wields the dagger won't wear the crown. And since I've led the motion of no confidence, and we're presuming here, of course, that the motion of no confidence will be successful. But if, if it was successful, then, uh, you know, tradition dictates that it's very unlikely I would be elected president of PNR. Yes, you would be a Heseltine figure, I, I guess, to, uh, to, to yeah, take I, us back I, in history. I mean, I, I, we can imagine there will be a number of people on the Conservative side of the 
the Assembly who would, you know, would be bitterly opposed to me having any job. What, what, yeah, if you were to become president of PNR or if you were to advise somebody who was going to become president of PNR, what would you want them to actually do in terms of a um, policy uh, proposals in the, in these remaining 18 months is there anything you know, like for example fix the deficit again is there any value in trying to attempt to uh, to address that issue again well i th- i actually think the issue is going to be addressed but but really not by any decision of the states beyond the fact that uh, uh, the states has uh, has uh, well, this pnr has decided to adopt uh, what's called pillar 2 of the uh, oecd initiative because i think that that actually has the potential to produce a lot more tax than uh, Treasury currently thinks. Um, I think there are far more companies within scope than than, than they imagine, and um, obviously we what what that is in effect proposing is a territorial corporate income tax, which is what I've been advocating for years uh, with a, a rate of fifteen percent. But in that case, only for the largest companies, members of groups with a turnover exceeding seven hundred and fifty million euros. But you've still got to make the rules. You know, it doesn't really matter whether there's only one taxpayer within the, within that category or or two hundred within that category. There still have to be rules. You have to design a territorial corporate income tax for that to work. So I I think um, actually um, the staff at um, Treasury have got their hands full though, because this is due to happen in 2025. You know, it's it's only just over a year away, and have really got their hands full to design and implement that system. I don't think they realise this yet, the scope of it, and the, and the idea that they could do that and take on a GST or something else, I think was just preposterous. But, you know, the amount of work involved, territorial corporate income tax, although I'm a huge advocate of it, is not a simple system, and. Um, to design it so that it will work properly uh, is going to take um, months and months of work. Uh, so we've got to get on and do that anyway. And I think if we stop stop bickering about, you know, GST or other major initiatives, because that's clearly now off the table for the time being, and get on with what the states have already in effect committed to doing, which is um, designing and implementing a territorial corporate income tax for 2025, um, then, uh, you know, we'll have our hands full. And actually, I believe that we will have, the, at the end of it, the nucleus of the solution to our problems. Because I think, A, the first phase of that, the, the application to large multinational groups, will produce far more money for Guernsey than Guernsey realises, uh, which will partly solve the immediate problem. But B, once people see how it works and get used to the idea that there are probably several hundred companies on the island who are uh, subject to this system, I think some of the the, the nonsense about, oh, well, you can't do that, all the business will go away, will disappear. PNR has estimated that it might bring in the, the Pillar 2 reforms might bring in something between 10 and 15 million a year. You've said you think it's much higher than that, but how high do you think it credibly could, could we? Well, I don't know. What, one of the things I want to do if I was on a new PNR is, is do a thorough investigation because people are pulling numbers out of the air. You, you have so-called experts on tax saying it's going to be three or four companies, which is ridiculous. You know, in, in, half of the FTSE 100 have captive insurance companies in Guernsey. Well, they're all going to be in scope. So that's 50. And then, you, you know, I'm a director of a company which will be in scope. 
Um, the, the, there are far, far more than people realize. But it's only because I'm involved with big business in my uh, you know, personal uh, life that I, I know anything about this at all. And I think most people just don't understand that there are a mass of uses of Guernsey by large corporates. And presumably the issue of not moving ahead of Jersey or the Isle of Man, the other crown dependencies... Has gone away. It will go away because they also... Will yeah, but they've all, they si- they've all committed to, to doing this from 1st of January 2025. And I but think there will be a need to align the, the rules. I think will, there will, there will which is another complicating factor, because you don't we don't want people sort of arbitraging between the, the three crown dependencies. So, I mean, this is why I'm saying... To, to do all this in 14 months, actually, is not easy. And the, the states are going to have their hands completely full designing and implementing that new system. Uh, talk of tax and arbitrage, and it takes us neatly onto the budget, to, to be honest. Uh, and indeed, one of the proposals from uh, Deputy John Gollop is, is an amendment to, uh, which, of course, was considered at the last meeting, effectively, to introduce <coughs> excuse me, uh, income tax at 22%. Um, income tax on individuals, uh, that is. Um, the, the concept was widely... Um, not quite ridiculed, but certainly, certainly opposed in the, in the states uh, the, the last week. Do you think that'll be? A- well, he's proposing something slightly different, isn't it? Because he, although he seconded the amendment last time to have um, an increase in the standard rate of income tax, he is now suggesting effectively a higher rate mm. for higher earners. Is it eighty thousand? I think is the figure he's it's come up with. Higher, yeah. So if yeah. your earnings are over eighty thousand pounds a year, you would pay a higher rate of income tax. I mean that. It wouldn't raise as much as increasing the standard rate of income tax. It obviously wouldn't hit lower earners in the same way that raising the standard rate of income tax might. And there's quite a lot of our readers or listeners, I think, who would say on the surface that sounds quite fair, that people who have the broader shoulders because their income is the highest would pay more. True, but several deputies would say... That such talk scares the horses, uh, and arguably they'd say, Charles, that your your proposal last time was was scaring the horses. You know, moving out of step with with Jersey and Yarla Man. Where do you feel that on taxation? Have we got flexibility to do more? Uh, you know, I'm not saying that you would necessarily uh, support this 22% move, but do you think that 20% is sacrosanct and should not never be touched? I think effectively it probably is. It's not very well known in Guernsey that until 1960, Guernsey had higher rates of tax and before the war, significantly higher rates of tax. And um, I can't remember what the, the higher rates went up to, but, you, you know, it was 30, 35 percent at least, I think. Um, and all it produced in the 1950s was a stagnant economy. Uh, and Guernsey was desperately poor after the occupation and the economy really didn't recover. And Jersey um, cut its uh, basic rate, in fact, it made a single rate of 20% and forced Guernsey, in effect, back to the old competitive uh, tax position uh, in 1960 to reduce its tax rate to 20% and abolish the higher rates. And actually, you can date the prosperity of Guernsey pretty much from that change. You know, through the 1960s, the island gradually became more prosperous, and it and and it's now, of course, you know, statistically one of the wealthiest jurisdictions in the world, and and we can look back and say, well, that was a trigger 
for um, the recovery. And I, I think um, people underestimate if if they if they think like John Gollop, they underestimate the importance of the the predictable twenty percent tax rate, which I think most people regard as a fair rate. Now. Um, We've had to compromise it, of course, because we've introduced tax caps for the very wealthy. And um, and that, again, was under com- th- competitive threat from uh, the other crown dependencies. Um, and, you know, I've, that makes me feel uncomfortable. But I think I was probably the Treasury Minister who introduced the tax caps, and, and we really felt we had no option. Um, so I think <clears throat> tampering with that would be difficult, um, and the messaging would be um, uh, very poorly received. Uh, and basically, I won't be supporting the amendment. Okay, so 22% has got no chance as far as you're concerned. There is also a proposal to uh, to remove the tax cap, uh, I believe. It, again, you would say that's got that's got no uh, hope. <clears throat> I think, unfortunately, because Jersey and the Isle of Man offer tax caps, um, we will feel, um, you know, bound by competitive pressure to to retain them. Uh, I think, it is, as a matter of principle and, and sort of social justice, they probably shouldn't be there. But um, it's a competitive world. Okay. Let, let's move away from tax for a second. Um, the, probably the most significant amendment on the agenda for the budget debate is effectively rerunning part of the uh, funding and investment plan, which is the proposal from uh, Deputy Andrea Dudley Owen as the President of Education to put the Osway campus and the funding of that project back on the agenda. That's probably going to be the issue that's going to take up most um, of deputies' time, even though, as I say, it is effectively rehashing in a, mem- uh, a, dis- a debate of two or three weeks ago. Where do, where, where do you stand on, on the potential success of that amendment? Well, I'd, uh, I, I hope it doesn't succeed, to be blunt. Uh, I moved an amendment um, you know, in the funding and investment plan debate, which would have funded... Um, the uh, portfolio two, as they called it, which included the um, the, the education program. Um, so I'm I'm supportive of them getting that program done. But this amendment doesn't propose any new revenue sources. It just it just says increase the borrowing capacity of the states and and fund the the project. But that doesn't provide any money to repay the borrowing. And I, and I think uh, if we adopted that, it would just simply blow a complete hole in in the state's uh, fiscal policies, and and frankly, um, you know, risk credit downgrades and all the rest of it, because it would be seen as fiscally irresponsible. PNR's position on that amendment is going to be interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. For two years, they have argued, and in fairness to them, whatever one thinks about their their proposed tax package, they were really very consistent for two years, arguing that there was a need to balance the revenue of the states and the expenditure of the states and the package they put together that their preferred package including GST would have done that now it lost if they now support a proposal to increase expenditure significantly take on another 200 million pounds of borrowing without bringing in any more revenue uh, they are going to blow a hole in their arguments over the last years, aren't Absolutely. they? They're in, a, in a sense, they're going to make your argument over a motion of no confidence stronger and easier to make 
if they undermine their case of the last two years. Yeah, I would expect them not to do to undermine it because I don't see how they could with any credibility say, oh, it's all right, we'll just go and write a cheque for 111 million and, you know, somehow it'll get sorted out. Um, you know, the reality is the state rejected various options for increasing revenues. Uh, Deputy Trotz uh, moved to... Um, impose a, a 23% basic rate of tax, my uh, amendment to uh, reform the corporate income tax system and uh, the PNR's proposal to introduce GST. So the states had three options on the table to raise more revenue and rejected them all. Um, so uh, I, I think it, it, it's, not cre it's not now credible to say, well, we're just going to spend the money anyway. And um, I, I really cannot see how PNR can, uh, you know, in all good conscience, support the the amendment. Uh, and I, I think it'll be the, probably the the biggest debate this week um, is is going to be around that because lots of us would like to see the um, education program uh, continued. Um, and as I say, I, I, I moved an amendment to try and enable it to continue. But given that all the revenue-raising options were defeated, I just don't see how we can move forward. Though arguably something has to happen because you know I, I, the the storm was well timed from an education perspective, but when they can't reopen the College of Further Education at the Coutonchet because of the state of the of the classrooms, um, you you kind of think how many more years are we going to condemn young people to uh, to an education such as this? Well, absolutely, and I mean you know we we can go over old ground ground that Matt's very familiar with uh, why we shouldn't be where we are now. Uh, but we are where we are, um, years of dithering and delay, and um, and the money's run out. So I, I just, you know, I wish the states would get a grip and, and accept my proposals for raising more revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and then we could do, you know, we could have done portfolio too. Uh, and, and that was confirmed by Treasury staff. The funding would have been there. But as it is, I don't see how we can. And PNR's position over the capital projects has been for, for a long time. You can do the hospital or you can do the education programme, but you can't do both. And the states effectively, they weighed up those options, didn't they, two or three weeks ago and decided to put the hospital on the list. So they prioritised the hospital. I mean, there must be quite a strong case if the states have now changed their minds and want to fund the education programme again, there must be a case for defunding the hospital. I mean, all, all that is going to be wrapped up in this debate this week, isn't it? Well, yes. And of course, uh, there are emails flying around within the States, um, you know, from supporters of the education programme saying, well, they can't do phase two of the hospital until 2026, 27 anyway, uh, for various log logistical reasons. So um, just push it back. Uh, but and and it, this risk becoming a very messy uh, sort of internecine warfare. Well, well, indeed, I mean, and, and arguably that's why education didn't take this approach in the funding and investment plan. But then, effectively, uh, health stole a march on them, got the backing for their plan, and, and education was just was was left rather floundering. I mean, do you think that, uh, that they should have actually taken? health on and had that head-to-head -head, uh, battle. Well, health funded. had a head start because they had this um, health fund, 
would wish to be honest, I don't think I was even aware of. But suddenly they magicked up out of out of the, the out of the side wings, you know, whatever it was, ninety million quid, yeah. and and so they were able to say, well, yeah, but we can we can do phase two. We you know we 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 only need to borrow twenty million or something, and and of course that kind of got it through through the the, the states. Education, unfortunately for them, does not have that um, secret education fund floating around in the in the side wings. Politics is full of hard choices, though, isn't it? You were Treasury Minister and you had to take to the states sometimes proposals where I can remember one, a debate we had over funding bowel cancer screening or improving museum storage i think it was yeah and uh we i mean we had to have that debate on the floor of the assembly because you there is only a limited part of money yeah. and, and you, you have to prioritize and the point the- of taking that debate to the assembly was to try, try and make members r- understand that you can't you can't have all the cake and and eat it but this know? states this week risks pretending that you can have all the cake and eat it doesn't it i mean that could be the outcome no more revenue is raised well if, if, if that is the outcome then huge. i really think the the the, the states will have lost all credibility um yeah you know basically um our credit rating will be shot to pieces um nobody will believe a word that the policy and resources committee says uh, if they if they turn around now and support education in in wanting to spend 111 million uh, after all their sort of strictures about, oh, we've run out of money and, uh, you know, we can't do do any more unless we raise some more revenue. Mm. So, so let's have a prediction. Will this education amendment uh, succeed or fail? I think it will fail. Um, but I think it'll be a messy, messy debate because, you know, we talked earlier about the sort of um, the, the, the conservative group in the assembly. The, this issue is going to split that group right down the middle and um and if and quite possibly shatter it uh because clearly i suspect pnr will feel obliged to oppose the amendment uh dudley owen and her supporters will obviously uh, support it and there are two different camps within the conservative group um and and i will very sadly um have to oppose it because i just don't think it's responsible to do i'm fully aware of how unsatisfactory that is for students at, at 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 our secondary schools and indeed going in, going on to the College of Further Education or Guernsey Institute as we now call it. Uh, it, it, you know, this is a dreadful situation which we have been left in. Mm. Um, let's move on to a couple of the other amendments for for the for the budget. Um, there's some um, moves to uh, clarify rules re- relating to uh, tax on real property. Uh, do you think that's uh, they will uh, create much uh, heat or light? Well, I think they're probably. Um, I suspect those have a good chance of going through, actually. And I've long argued that we should have penal tax rates on uh, derelict property and so on. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels that that is a, a, an issue whose time has come. Yeah, I, I think it should have come a long time ago, to be honest. And I never understood the arguments of people saying, "Oh, but it would impose hardship, and all these old people haven't got any money to do the property up." Well, sell it. You know the the answers in their hands. Give sell the property to somebody who will do it up. Mm. And Deputy Roffey has an amendment in, which would uh, would which would keep TRP increases in the future to inflation, 
until there is a deferral scheme to allow people, presumably older people who are um, asset rich and cash poor, as the saying goes, uh, to basically to allow them to roll up their TRP bills and then yeah. pay it out of their estate. Well, I, now, that, that could, if that gets through and there is a deferral scheme, that could be uh, that that could be the platform for really quite significant further increases in TRP, couldn't it? Because the argument that you can't do that to people who are asset rich and cash poor would suddenly have disappeared. Yeah, and. I'm I'm not terribly sympathetic. I mean, basically, if you allow people to defer defer paying TRP, you deprive the states of revenue today, in the hope of getting some when they die or whatever. Uh, but the states has a budget problem now, mm-hmm. and to, to reduce the state's income at, at, at this particular moment in history is seems to me like uh, you know a, a bonkers thing to do. I think we've only got one really left on, on the list, which is uh, Deputy St. Pierre's uh, uh, attempt to uh, get the Lieutenant Governor to, uh, to pay income tax on, uh, on his uh, uh, wages and uh, equalise himself with the position of the, of the, of the King. Um, where do you stand on that one? Well, to be honest, I think it's gesture politics, and I, I'm I'm really not very happy with it. it I, I I don't actually know what the lieutenant governor is paid, but twenty percent income tax on whatever that figure is 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 going to be an immaterial sum in the context of our budget problems, and I I just think it 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 comes across as as sort of tinkering at the edges and uh, as I say gesture politics, and I'm not very excited by it okay uh, you've prepared budgets yourself obviously in your days at the, at the treasury how important is the putting together of a budget and how much thought uh, tends to, to go into it well in guernsey they're very mechanistic you know you basically because nobody tinkers with the the basic rate of tax etc uh you, you know you get a, a few pennies on on a pint of beer and a and a you know something on cigarettes and what and and frankly guernsey budgets traditionally have been very boring and and that's why historically they were hardly ever amended I mean, I don't think during my four years as Treasury Minister there was ever a significant um, material amendment. Yes, it used to be a badge of honour if you got your budget through without an amendment. Yeah, and most of the time that's what happened. But that was because the budgets were incredibly boring and there was nothing really controversial in them. It was just sort of shove a bit more on road tax or something. Um, and, uh, and now, of course, it's, it's very different, uh, partly because of the fiscal pressures. But also, I think that the whole customs and practice around it have 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 changed. You know, when when I was Treasury Minister, the tradition was that the the Treasury Minister's opening speech was applauded by the whole assembly. I don't know why, but it was, and that doesn't happen anymore. I'd be very surprised if there's a round of applause when Deputy Hellier sits sits down tomorrow. Well, I guess there was a round of applause because it was almost a, congr- a self congratulation for how well the states had run its fiscal affairs. But maybe that no longer applies. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. I, I never understood the tradition in the first place. It's quite nice to receive the round of applause, but uh, I, you know, what, I didn't really know what I'd done to earn it. 
I don't know if the red briefcase comes out anymore either. I don't think I've seen that no, for a while. that's another tradition that seems to have gone. And, and it was just an empty box that we waved around for, for reporters like yourselves. And and then it got put back in the store. At Westminster, <laughs> the Chancellor is allowed to drink alcohol while, while presenting the budget. That's was was not that ever in, a tradition? that Not that I know Guernsey of. Had yes. Um, uh, well, that would have been fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> anyway, you might be presenting the next budget, of course, because if you end up on PNR, if if the, if your motion is successful, would you be interested in uh, revisiting that role as? as yeah, I, I, um, I I would because of course that's um, where my experience is and where my professional skill set lies. So, um, but as if, as I said, I, I will serve anywhere that the states um, wants me to go, and. Um, uh, if 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 they want me to be on PNR, then you know I'll happily step up. Anyway, we're strictly teetotal in the Guernsey Press Coffee House, but uh, uh, I think that's time to uh, to wrap things up. Uh, thank you, Deputy Parkinson, for joining us t- today. For You're very uh, welcome for that um, preview chat. Um, so the states starts on Tuesday morning. Uh, we'll be back on Tuesday evening with the first edition of the Shorthand States with Matt and Simon Delarue in the chair, uh, and and uh, so we'll see you again then. Bye for now. 